Next to Jesus' death and resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the events that take place in Acts chapter 10 are the most important developments in the history of Christianity. If ever there was a power lunch, this was it. Up until Acts chapter 10, the church was made up mostly of Jews. Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism. But Jesus promised Peter keys to the kingdom. And the man with those keys would open the door of salvation to both Jews and then Samaritans and ultimately Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, God blazes a new trail and Peter leads the way. God uses a vision from heaven to open up Peter's mind and his heart and even his mouth. And eventually the community of God. A heavenly vision supplies Peter the courage to chart a new course. In this chapter, a new work begins. God teaches Peter that what he once called unclean, he now calls okay. And that includes both Gentiles and pork chops. (laughs) Acts chapter 10 forever changes the scope of Christianity and the makeup of Christ's church. We cannot overemphasize the significance of the events in Acts chapter 10. Well, we pick up tonight where we left off last week in chapter 9, verse 32. Now, it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. Lydda was an Israeli city with a large Gentile population. 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, about 8 miles uh, from the Mediterranean port of Joppa. Today, Lydda, which goes by its Old Testament name, Lod, is between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. It's actually the home to the Ben-Gurion airport. Verse 33. There Peter found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Now every morning for the first 18 years of my life, this is what my mother commanded me to do. (coughs) Arise and make your bed. And even though I had two very functional legs, I'm sad to report I rarely obeyed. But Aeneas, a man who had been crippled for eight years, then arose immediately. It was a miracle. Aeneas' lame legs were strengthened. Suddenly they were made limber. They even began to walk. He even made his bed. And so all, dwelt, so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Sharon was a regional name encompassing the entire coastal plain. And so what he's saying here is that the good news of Jesus has spread from Jerusalem, now into the hills of Samaria, now westward toward the Israeli coast. The port cities were next, the Jewish port of Joppa and the Roman port of Caesarea. Verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. The name is Aramaic for gazelle, which is translated Dorcas, which was the Greek equivalent. Now, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now, they were already preparing her body for burial. She had been washed. Soon she would be covered with spices. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Evidently, She had been some sort of seamstress, perhaps a fashion designer, we don't know. 
Friends, though, were paying tribute to her skill. They were displaying her handiwork. Peter is about to display Jesus' handiwork. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And you should recognize the similarities between the mannerisms of Peter here and the methods of Peter's master, our Lord Jesus. Peter performs this miracle exactly the way that Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from her deathbed. The first similarity was to put out the professional mourners. The first century Jews would pay certain women to weep and wail at their loved one's funeral. It was sort of a feigned grief. And Jesus had no tolerance for these crocodile tears. Our Lord prefers to work his miracles in an atmosphere of faith and of praise. That's why before Jesus works a miracle, he always puts out the mourners. But the similarities continue. And turning to the body, Peter said, Tabitha, arise. This was pretty much verbatim what Jesus had said to Jairus' daughter. Jesus said, Talitha kumai, or little girl, I say to you, arise. It was the same command. You know, you get the impression that Peter is sort of in over his head. He's a fisherman, not a miracle worker. And so when he comes to the point of decision, he takes his cues from Jesus. He remembers what Jesus did and follows him precisely. That's not a bad thing to do, by the way. You remember Matthew 9 in Mark chapter 5, Jesus said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed. Again, this is what Jesus had said to the crippled Aeneas. It just seems that whenever Peter was overwhelmed by his circumstances, he just sort of went to default mode. WWJD, what would Jesus do? But then he doesn't sell the slogan by printing it on little bracelets. He just does it. And Peter gets the same results as Jesus. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Here is Jesus' disciples doing the same works that Jesus had done, which, of course, the Lord had predicted. It's amazing to me, Peter, of all people, the man who'd been chicken, now has the courage of a lion. Peter's walking by faith. He's daring to trust in Jesus. Do you walk by faith? Are you trusting in Jesus tonight? And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. A tanner was about as close as you could get to an ancient taxidermist. A tanner was skilled in dressing and preserving animal hides. And since a tanner worked with dead animals, the laws of Judaism considered him ceremonially unclean, thus prohibiting Simon the tanner from participating in the Jewish rituals of the temple. In fact, his trade was so despised by the Jews that he was forced to work outside the city. Because of his defilement, the defilement associated with the task of working with the hides, the Jewish Mishnah actually gave a tanner's wife the right to divorce him. His job was so despicable. That Peter even stayed in the house of a tanner was another example of him doing what Jesus did. Peter was willing to befriend and identify with sinners. Jesus had shown him that it was God's will to reach out to the unreachable, to love the unlovable. I'm sure Peter recalled the words of Jesus, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It's interesting, Peter seems to already be leaning in the direction of grace. But in Acts chapter 10, he free falls. He jumps out of the plane on a parachute of grace. Verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Caesarea was Israel's Roman port on the Mediterranean Sea. It was quite a place. 
The city and its harbor were built by Herod the Great in honor of the Roman Caesar, thus Caesarea. It was a magnificent port, a world-renowned harbor. Caesarea was Rome's political and military capital there in Israel. It was the home to the governor and the headquarters of the Roman occupation. And there was a soldier stationed there in Caesarea by the name of Cornelius. Verse 2 tells us about him. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Cornelius was a Roman from Italy. He was an Italian, the original Italian stallion, you might say. And he was a centurion, equal to a sergeant in our army. Sergeants are the backbone of the military. Such was the centurion in the Roman legion. It's interesting, whenever a centurion appears in the New Testament, it's usually in a favorable light. To rise to this rank, such a man had to be disciplined and he had to be trustworthy. In verse 1, we're told that this Cornelius was in charge of the Italian regiment. Apparently, this was a detachment that served as the Roman governor's personal bodyguard. In essence, they were the secret service of the Roman military. Cornelius was also called a God-fearer. He was a Gentile who had tired of Greek and Roman paganism. He was hungry for the true God. He had embraced Judaism, at least short of being circumcised, These God-fearers were sincere seekers. They obeyed the law's moral demands, even gave offerings to the local synagogue. These Roman God-fearers were good people, yet they were lost people. In all this man's good works, he had failed to find God. Well, about the ninth hour of the day, that is, three in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And so he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. God had heard Cornelius's prayer. In fact, God always hears the sincere prayers of a searching heart. I believe that. He says, now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. You remember Philip in Acts chapter 8. God called him to leave a happening revival there in Samaria. To find a solitary man on a deserted highway on the way down to Gaza. Philip explained the scriptures to this Ethiopian dignitary who was in search of the truth. You see, God never allows a sincere God-fearer who seeks him to return home empty-handed. Whether it's an aborigine in the Australian outback or whether it's a little boy growing up in a strict Islamic country, somehow, someway, I believe God is going to get to a sincere seeker the truth and get them pointed in the direction of of the Lord Jesus. Recently, Pastor Joe at the Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia, he told me of a young lady in his church who's recently been converted. Before she became a Christian, she had always asked the question, though, what about the man on the island who's never heard the gospel? That was sort of one of the biggest obstacles to her faith. Joe said recently she was on a mission trip with the church to Uganda. And on one of the islands out in the middle of Lake Victoria, she was witnessing to a man who had never heard about Jesus. In fact, he was so moved by the gospel, tears were rolling down his cheeks. That's when it hit her. She was the answer to her question. What about the man on the island who's never heard? God has his ways to get the gospel to sincere hearts. And one of his ways just might be you. Verse 7. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier 
from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had examined all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now their mission was to fetch Peter. And so the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, that is high noon. Now again, as we've mentioned, when God does a work, it affects both sides of the equation. You know, what God does in this person's life, he's going to also be working on the other end of the connection. Cornelius' men are en route. When God tackles Peter's reluctance ahead of time, it's noon, it's on the rooftop, when all of a sudden Peter sees a vision. And Joppa, by the way, was the perfect backdrop for this vision. You know, today when you go to Joppa, there's a well-shaped fountain right in the downtown area. It was put there in honor of Jonah, who set sail from the port of Joppa. Jonah, remember, was the bigoted prophet. He was prejudiced against Ninevites. In fact, he hated Gentiles. In Jonah's mind and heart, God's salvation was for Jews only. But God altered Jonah's direction. He stirred up a storm. He scared a ship's crew into slinging Jonah into the sea where a fish swallowed Jonah, then spit him up on the bank. A repentant Jonah went on to preach to the Gentiles, and now God is at it again, right back in Joppa, where he once more intends to bust up the Jews-only club. It's noon. The tropical heat is on the rise. Peter climbs up onto the rooftop patio to enjoy a little shade, cool off in the ocean breeze, and it's lunchtime. Then Peter became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Peter's stomach is growling. He's longing for a bowl of lentils or matzo balls. He can just taste a moist mutton sandwich. He'll settle for a falafel. But God himself serves Peter lunch. And Peter saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Suddenly, this huge picnic blanket descends from heaven with all kinds of incredible inedibles on it. And all the entrees are of a non-kosher variety. See, nothing Peter's being offered is on the Jewish menu. God's tasty treats fly in the face of what Peter's religion had taught him he could munch. And yet Peter suddenly hears the voice of God. It says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Realize, in the first century, Jews and Gentiles were separated by pedigree, by circumcision, by Sabbath worship, but perhaps most of all, they were defined by diet. A kosher Jew was religiously superior to a non-kosher Gentile. And that kosher Jew would never in a million years pull up to a table full of God-forbidden food. Nor would he eat with folks who occupied that table. Jewish dietary laws were the epitome of religion. Yes, the distinction between clean and unclean did have some health benefits. Especially in a day when meat wasn't always properly prepped and when there was no refrigeration. But kosher laws were part of a bigger picture. See, God had conditioned his people Israel to approach life in a certain manner. All of life was to be delineated or separated as clean and unclean, holy and unholy, pure and impure, acceptable to God and unacceptable to God. And this distinction was a grid that overlaid every dimension of Jewish life. 
food and sacrifice and washing and houses and even people. See, the law provided a means of differentiating good from bad. By learning the law, you could pick out the good guys and you could pick out the bad guys. And you see, this is the purpose behind all religion, not just Jewish religion, but all religion, Muslim religion, Buddhist religion, Hindu religion, even pseudo-Christian religion defines clean from unclean, acceptable from unacceptable. Every religion has standards and taboos and rituals that allow you to label people pure and defiled. Often liberal critics attack religion as the enemy of unity. They claim that religion is the great divider in the world today. Rather than bring us together, it keeps us apart. It separates us into factions and inflames hostilities. And in a sense, this is true. Every religion provides criteria that divides up humanity into holy and into unholy. And no other religion did this as comprehensively and as rigorously as did God's religion, Judaism. Kosher Jews were reminded at every mealtime that there was such a thing as right and wrong, holy and unholy. Good guys ate the clean foods. Bad guys ate the dirty birds. And of course, Judaism didn't end with diet. It did such a thorough job identifying good from bad that by the time you had subjected your life to the entire Mosaic law, you had to conclude with Rabbi Saul in the first chapters of his letter to the Romans that there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. See, an honest Jew, an honest Old Testament Jew under the law was forced into an uncomfortable conclusion, and that was this. Everybody is a bad guy. We're all sinners. In the ranks of humanity, there are no good guys. This was the conclusion you drew under the law. And this is why Christianity picks up where Judaism leaves off. You know, we say this all the time, but without its full implication really hitting us. But Christianity is not religion. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is about salvation, not religion. You see, religion chooses sides. It picks out the good guys from the bad guys. It assigns white hats and black hats. It awards merit badges to people for accumulating filthy rags. That's what religion does. But that's not Christianity. The gospel declares that we're all bad guys. There's only one good guy, and his name is Jesus. And the goal of Christianity is to bring everybody to Jesus. Whether you're a Tech fan or a Georgia fan, a Mac user or a PC user, a Republican or a Democrat, a Baptist or a Methodist. It doesn't matter who your religion says you are. You're a bad guy and you need Jesus. Unrighteous bad guys and self-righteous bad guys. Secular bad guys and religious bad guys. Pew-sitting bad guys and pulpit-standing bad guys. All of us need Jesus. Today, the line in the sand for the whole human race is no longer the food we put in our mouth, but the faith we put in Jesus. God bestows grace and he shows favor to those people who come to Jesus. Now, here's what's happening in Peter's vision. God is putting an end to religion. He's replacing it with salvation Judaism was religion. It was God's religion, even a perfect religion, but it was still religion. Now God is putting religion on the shelf, and he's choosing new terms for his covenant with humanity. Christianity is salvation, not religion. Since none of us are good, salvation is all about grace. And the only place you find grace is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter needed to stop being religious 
and drop its distinctions. Folks are no longer categorized as clean or unclean, chosen or common, white hats or black hats. The line of demarcation is no longer religion and its trappings. It's now a matter of receiving the grace of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Somebody want to get that? Oh, it's somebody's... uh... Hold on a second. It's Jack's. It's Jack's cell phone. Jack, come up for a little embarrassment, Jack. You're welcome. Oh, my. <laughs> Trying to think of a way of working that into the sermon, but I guess you need grace, Jack. You need grace. This was the lesson that God taught me when he introduced me to Calvary Chapel. That it's all about grace. That it's not about our traditions. It's not about, you know, our our version of right and wrong. It's all about God's grace. At the time that I found Calvary Chapel, I was a straight-laced religious Baptist. I thought my legalistic observance made me right with God. But Calvary Chapel was my heavenly vision. I saw this giant heavenly shirt, Hawaiian shirt, descend out of heaven. And on it were long-haired hippies in bell-bottom jeans with electric guitars and drums playing praise songs to Jesus. See, I thought you had to dress up to go to church. I didn't think you could have long hair and go to heaven. I was always told that electric guitars and drums were of the devil. Yet I heard God say, rise, Sandy, play and sing. (laughs) The love and the holiness that I sensed at Calvary Chapel left me no choice. I knew it was God. And obviously God was not behaving according to the rules that I had been taught. This was what Peter found out. Theologically, I believed in grace, but when I saw it in action, it challenged me and it forced me from my comfort zone. This is what it did to Peter and what it does to all of us when we realize that a person doesn't have to live up to my standards or to my prejudices or to my tradition to be considered acceptable to God. If God calls a man clean, he's clean indeed. And only Jesus can make a man clean in God's eyes. Only Jesus. Obviously, God is up to something new, but Peter isn't sure what God is cooking up. And thus, Peter's reply in verse 14 leaves much to be desired. But Peter said, not so, Lord. He said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, no, not so, no way. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Of course, this is the ultimate oxymoron. You can say not so friend or not so buddy, but you can't say not so Lord. Lord means master. It means boss. If Jesus is your Lord, you're under his command. You can't say not so Lord. And yet I empathize with Peter's reluctance. You got to understand, asking a good Jew to eat non-kosher, would be like asking a diehard vegan to pig out on a chili cheeseburger. I mean, it would be that preposterous. This was a complicated decision. Years of religious training and the bias that it had created in him kept Peter hemmed in. He was trapped by three powerful forces, by principle, by prejudice, and by precedent. Now understand, principles are either informed or misinformed, depending on how they're formed. Peter had grown up a good Jewish boy. Tradition had forged his principles. 
He went to the synagogue on Saturday. He paid his tithes. He kept the Passover. He made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He offered his sacrificial lamb. And Peter had kept kosher in obedience to Leviticus 11 his whole life long. He had only ordered off the clean menu. His wife went to a deli with the rabbinical sticker of approval in the window. Shrimp or lobster had never crawled over Peter's lips. Peter had never savored a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Peter had never had the pleasure of pork barbecue. It was a matter of principle. I'll never doubt Peter's devotion to principle. In my mind, a life without barbecue rivals the zeal of a suicide bomber. This man was committed. I mean, Peter was serious about principle. So when God told Peter to eat unclean foods, it was as if 1,500 years of tradition and the law of Moses and a 1,000 rabbis and his entire Jewish family were screaming in Peter's ear to ask for another menu. From birth, Peter's conscience was drilled to keep kosher. This wasn't a simple preference. This was a deeply held matter of conscience. This was a principle to Peter. And yet, please take note, a misinformed principle kept Peter on the wrong side of God's will. You need to be careful. Because a misinformed principle can keep you on the wrong side of God's will. Our conscience is an organ that we train to act on cue. The conscience is taught by both truth and tradition. Thus, it can fight against the Holy Spirit, or it can be his ally. Go to the Middle East today, and you'll see this on both sides of the conflict. Jews can't give in to Muslims. Why? Because it would violate their conscience. Muslims can't concede to Jews because it would violate their conscience. A conscience can be programmed by either truth or by error. Peter needed to surrender his conscience to the lordship of Jesus. Some of Peter's principles were wrong. Some no longer applied. God was blazing a new trail. A sovereign God is now stepping out of the box and he's recruiting Peter to step out with him. But Peter has to cut ties with a few long-held principles if he's going to be part of this work of grace. Peter was also trapped by prejudice. And don't underestimate the power of a prejudice. When Peter thought of eating pork and visiting Gentiles, it just didn't feel right. This was outside his comfort zone. And prejudicial feelings caused his resistance. I know some prim and proper Baptists who would never come to church wearing short pants or mow their lawn on a Sunday. Why? It just doesn't feel right. See, there are some things that don't feel right to you, but that doesn't make it wrong for someone else. A Christian has to represent God's truth, not his own prejudices. To live by grace, I make the decision not to let my preferences or my feelings or my traditions govern my interactions. Your prejudices will close the door to certain people. Grace will keep those doors open. And for Peter to obey God, he also has to step over a precedent. He answered God, Nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. I mean, Peter had established a standard in his life. I mean, this had never, ever happened to him. Peter had never had sausage on his pizza. You realize that. And this is the type of conviction that religious folks applaud. This is like Eric Little never running a race on Sundays. Or Sandy Koufax, not pitching on Yom Kippur. I mean, a guy is making a costly commitment here. He refuses to budge. 
And here Peter does the same thing. But ironically, his commitment works against God's will in his life. God wants to take Peter, not up to the edge of where he's been. He wants to take him to a new place. Yet to obey God and go there, Peter has to step over a precedent. You know, some steps are hard to take just because they've never been taken before. Peter has a decision he has to make. Kill and eat or sit still and disobey. This was a tough decision for Peter. Perhaps that's why God repeated the vision three times. Peter had to wrestle with it. He had to dissect truth from prejudice. Peter's conscience supported a prejudice that he had to discard. Verse 15, and a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times. And the object was taken up into heaven again. On the rooftop in Joppa, God was weaning Peter off religion so that he could embrace his grace. And perhaps this is what God is wanting to do in your life. Unlike religion, Christianity isn't a commitment to a principle or to a prejudice or to a precedent. It's a pledge of allegiance to a person. Christianity is all about Jesus. See, the ruler always trumps the rules. The Lord overrides the law. As followers of Jesus, our conscience is bound to one passion, and that is to please our Lord Jesus. We're not to follow religious expectations or church traditions or certainly rules of our own making. We're to follow Jesus and only Jesus. Will you go where he sends you? Do what he says do? Love whoever he sends to your door? And realize there will always be a knock at your door. Verse 17. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Now we get grace from God, but then we give grace to everyone around us. And it's the giving of God's grace that sends us on this grand adventure. You know, religion is uniform and boring and mechanical and predictable. Grace is wild and woolly. Grace is the call of the wild. It's orthodox to believe in grace, but risky to practice grace. Hey, start applying grace in your lives and to other people, and you'll be criticized by religious folks. Dare to extend grace to those who don't deserve it, and you'll find yourself in some uncomfortable places with some uncomfortable people, dealing with some uncomfortable situations. This is what happened to Peter. No sooner does God fold up the picnic blanket that three Gentiles, Romans no less, are knocking at his door, beckoning him to come with them. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them. And I love this encouragement. Doubting nothing. For I have sent them. You know, legalistic leanings can be deeply ingrained in a person. Prejudice can be deeply ingrained. And it can derail our faith. That's why to take the path of grace, we have to remove all doubts. Doubting nothing. That's how we go. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. A new adventure of faith is about to begin. 
On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I myself am also a man. I'm sure that on the way up the coast from Joppa to Caesarea, it's about 30 miles, Peter was thinking through the implications of God's grace. In Judaism, a Jew was forbidden to enter the home of a Gentile. It would defile him. He would be unclean. But Peter realizes that once you strip away religion, there's no difference between him and Cornelius. They both put their britches on the same way. They're both bad guys in need of Jesus. Peter knows he shouldn't be worshipped. He's just a man like every other man. And he resents it when Cornelius tries. You know, it's interesting, though. People still revere Peter. I'm sure much to his dismay. Go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and you'll see Catholic worshipers lined up at Michelangelo's statue to kiss the foot of Peter. In fact, over the years, their lips have rubbed away his big toe. (laughs) It's nothing but idolatry. And if Peter were here, he'd put his foot down and he'd stop this foolishness. He would insist again that he's just a man. This was his approach to Cornelius, verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? And so Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. And so I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore we are present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Talk about eager listeners. That's a group of people I'd love to preach to. Okay, we're here. You're here. What what do you want to say? What do you got to say to us? God told us to listen to you. That's a good introduction to the sermon. Charles Spurgeon once said, It's not a great preacher that makes a great congregation, but a great congregation that makes a great preacher. And I agree with that. When you've got eager listeners, it makes for a good sermon. Verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Red and yellow, black and white, we're all precious in his sight. Old prejudice Pete, he's come a long way, hasn't he? But in every nation, not not just Israel, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from, Jeru- from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 
To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Everybody is a bad guy. There's only one good guy. His name is Jesus. And Christianity, salvation is all about bringing everybody to the one good guy, Jesus Christ. Peter preaches. And notice there's nothing really fancy or clever or eloquent about his sermon. He just kind of lays out the facts, points them to Jesus, which is really all a preacher needs to do. For while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. You realize, he didn't even have time to give his invitation. The Holy Spirit just fell upon them and baptized them with the power of the Holy Spirit right on the spot. Peter didn't even get through with his sermon. He doesn't even give his altar call before he gets interrupted by the Holy Spirit. You know, it's funny. Peter holds the unique distinction of being the only man interrupted by all three members of the Trinity. Did you know this? On the Mount of Transfiguration, remember, Peter was interrupted by God the Father. On several occasions, he was interrupted by God the Son, and here he's interrupted by God the Holy Spirit. There are times when we also, when we also need to be interrupted by God, when we need to quiet our opinions and let the Holy Spirit speak into our situation. He said, And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, that's why he brought a group with them. He wanted them to witness what was going to happen. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now notice what happens. This was so revolutionary. Before Peter can brief these Gentiles on keeping kosher. They know nothing about dietary laws. Before he can clip the first circumcision... They're all uncircumcised. Before they make the first sacrifice or even read the law, God saves the Italian guard just as he did the Jews. And it had absolutely nothing to do with anything but God's grace and their faith. It was all about amazing grace. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnified God. And this was important because the same evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit that the Jews received at Pentecost was now apparent among the Gentiles in Caesarea. This was the same salvation that both had received. And it was not about keeping the law at all. It was about Jesus and receiving Jesus. This was evidence that the Gentiles had entered into the same covenant in the same way as had the Jews. Well, then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? (laughs) I mean, God's accepted them. You know, don't you think we should? You know, do you... Is anybody going to prohibit them from being baptized? No, of course not. God's accepted them. He's validated their salvation. And so he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. In essence, they were baptized as Christians, not as Jews, but as Christians. And then they asked him to stay a few days. Throughout the Old Testament, you had to be a child of Abraham to be a child of God. Just as there were clean and unclean foods, there were chosen and common people. Jews were special. Gentiles were ordinary. But when Jesus died on the cross, he did so to take away the sins of the whole world, not just the Jews. Access to God is now available to all people. It's been said, the only level ground in all the world is at the foot of the cross. Today, the only in crowd on the planet that really matters are those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ? Yet, sadly, that's not always the case in some churches. You know, I found that church leaders today like to lay down their own law 
If you conform to the man-made rules, you can ride in the front of the bus. But if you resist, you'll have to sit in the back. Believers are divided into first class and coach. It's a religious caste system. It exists in some churches, and it is the opposite of grace. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. None. Always remember what Peter learned. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years. And, and the person over here was saved five hours ago. That person is as right with God as you are. Because both of you stand in Christ. Your righteousness is about your faith in him. Not about anything you've done or haven't done. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Later, Peter writes to all believers in his letters, and he calls them God's own special people. That's all of us. He says we're complete in Christ, not because we tow the party line. This is an amazing adventure for a good Jew like Peter. Gentiles knock on his door. He travels with Gentiles to a Gentile city, enters a Gentile home, then preaches to a room full of Gentiles. It was a culture shock indeed. In one sense, Peter just went up the coast of Israel. But in another sense, Peter's experience with Cornelius and with the Romans was the shot heard round the world. Jewish rabbis at the time would have said a Gentile wasn't worthy to set foot under the same roof as a Jew. Yet by the end of this day, Gentile believers now know the same God and participate in the same covenant and enjoy the same Holy Spirit and the same power and the same evidence as the Jewish believers. The future of Christianity was forever altered by Peter's obedience to this heavenly vision. In fact, you and I, we owe our place in God's family to Peter's courage and his obedience here. Hey, may we say thank you by also spreading the grace of God and daring to move out into our own adventures of grace. Father, we thank you.